Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Paseo Podcast, everyone. We have another good show for you all today. Our guest is journalist Justin Agrello. He is currently covering housing for local Chicago media outlet City Bureau, and some of you may know him for his piece in Mother Jones on the history of the Puerto Rican flag. We're going to talk to him about, among other things, his experience as a Puerto Rican journalist, representation in journalism, the history of the Puerto Rican flag, and the importance of reporting on housing. But first, I want to talk about some Puerto Rican news I came across this week. With the presidential election a few days away, there's been a lot of conversation on the importance of the Latinx vote, particularly around the Puerto Rican vote in swing states like Florida and Pennsylvania. I talked about this on episode 34 of the podcast and at length on the Ben Jarofsky show over at the Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader last week, and I'll make sure to put those in the show notes. But what I discussed in short was the large number of unregistered Puerto Ricans, and when I say unregistered, I mean unregistered voters that are Puerto Rican that have moved to the mainland and the voter suppression that has hindered their ability to actively engage in the electoral process. Everything from a lack of information on how to register to vote and how U.S. elections actually work to being made aware that something like early voting exists and is an option. Now, I want to be clear, Puerto Ricans, by looking at the data available, are not apathetic to voting. In fact, voter participation in Puerto Rico is at 80% for major elections, much, much higher than in the United States. The lack of registered Puerto Rican voters is an unfortunate reality, especially when you look at the 2016 election and seeing just how close some of these states were in determining a winner in the presidential race. This was super sad, at least in my opinion. Um, I don't know who, if you're listening, who exactly you were going for, but this was sad to see uh, in general because the Puerto Rican vote can be a force in politics with over 5 million of us in the diaspora here in the U.S. Now, keep in mind that outnumbers the number of Boricuas on La Isla, which is at over 3 million plus. But there is some good news, as ABC News recently reported, voter turnout among Puerto Ricans in presidential elections has increased recently. In 2012, nearly 53% voted. Also, I should preface this, uh, you're going to feel like you're in math class because I'm going to throw a lot of numbers out, so just stick with me. In 2012, nearly 53% of Puerto Ricans voted. That's up from a low in 2000 of about 46% of Puerto Ricans that voted. That figure rose again in 2016 to almost 55%. So we're seeing a growth in the Puerto Rican vote from one election cycle to another. So it's trending positively. Another interesting fact in that report had to deal with Puerto Ricans' likeliness to vote based on how long they've lived somewhere. So in 2012, about 51% of Puerto Ricans who lived at the same address for at least five years voted. 
Now compare that with 13% of Puerto Ricans who lived at their current residence for less than a year. Basically, Boricuas who live at an address longer have a higher chance of voting because they have a better understanding of the electoral system compared to those who recently arrived from the island. So this brought up a passion of mine in an odd way, which is observing the migration patterns of Boricuas. I find it fascinating because here in Chicago, we have Paseo Boricua, a strip of land that acts as a hub of Puerto Rican culture and has yet to be matched in scale or accomplishments by any other Puerto Rican community in the United States. Now, if I'm wrong, call me out on it. Let us know on our Twitter and Facebook at Paseo Podcast. Would love to hear from y'all. Would love to know about other Puerto Rican communities throughout the diaspora that are doing amazing things. I just happen to think that uh, Paseo Boricua, again, just based on its scale uh, and accomplishments, uh, it, it, it's definitely at the, the top of the list for me. But always awesome to hear about other thriving Puerto Rican communities out there. I'd love to see that. But getting back to my point, Boricua migration patterns. At one point, Illinois, where Chicago is, was in the top three, top five in Puerto Rican populations in the states. Now, Chicago is down to number seven with over 201,000 Puerto Ricans. So states like Florida and Pennsylvania have actually cracked the top four with Pennsylvania at over 438,000 Puerto Ricans and Florida just behind New York with over one million. Shoot, Florida might end up being the state with the highest number of Puerto Ricans pretty soon. And if we look at Florida and we look at Pennsylvania, those two are swing states. So in those two swing states of Florida and Pennsylvania, where Puerto Ricans can have a significant impact in determining who will be president, this is a big deal. And I have dreamed of this day where our vote is a force to be reckoned with in the political system. And we are in a moment in time like no other we've ever experienced in our voting history. I actually saw a Telemundo poll. Uh, the sample size wasn't exactly the, the greatest, um, but they, they did a poll. And uh, looking at Florida as an example, here was the breakdown. Uh, for Cubans, which make up about 1.2 million of the population uh, in Florida, they are 23% in favor of Biden, 71% in favor of Trump. 71%. Whew. Compare that to Puerto Ricans, that's 66% in favor of Biden versus 23% in favor of Trump. All other Latinx ethnicities were 62% for Biden, 27% for Trump. So we could see a moment in our history where the deciding Latinx vote in Florida is not Cubans, but rather Puerto Ricans in collaboration with other Latinx ethnicities. Because keep in mind, the Puerto Rican population in Florida is at 1.1 million, and that's growing. So we could see a point where the way we've talked about the Cuban vote in Florida for one election after the other, ends up becoming the Puerto Rican vote. That ends up dominating the discussion. So it's, an interest, it's interesting to look at some of these migration patterns, especially in these crucial states that could really determine, again, who's going to be in the White House. Uh, so the fact that the Puerto Rican vote has gotten so much attention, that's not something we've often got in these election cycles, in news reporting, in mainstream media, in top-tier media. So this is a, a really interesting moment in, in in our time. So the picture I'm trying to paint here 
isn't to blame anyone for lack of engagement in the electoral process. It's to acknowledge that it can be difficult as hell to stay up to date with politics and policy, especially if you're new to a political system. This is also meant to be a call to action for us in the diaspora. Those of us that have been here for a while, especially. We have a privilege with our vote that our brothers and sisters on La Isla do not. And that is the ability to vote for change at the federal level. If you live in Puerto Rico, you cannot vote for the U.S. president. The furthest you can go is the presidential primary. So that means in order to vote on the future of your home, we must leave it in order to have a say in its future. It's super messed up, but that's where we are. As we get closer to the election, please do everything you can to not only educate yourself on who you are voting for from the top to the bottom of the ballot, but encourage the people in your networks to register as well, if they still can in their state. And vote early, vote in person, or vote by mail. There's a ton of options. In fact, I'll leave it up to former Congressman Luis Gutierrez to bring this point home. Luis? It's on us. Get off your ass. Make a plan. Vote. Y en español? Despiértate, vota, no manches. Perfect. Gracias, Luis. If you haven't listened to our last bonus episode, that snippet is going to sound super random. So definitely give that a listen, and I promise it will make sense. But don't listen to that bonus episode just yet, because we're going to head into our interview with journalist Justin Agrello. Keep in mind, we recorded this with Justin a few weeks ago before we got our new sound set up, so the audio is going to sound like a Zoom call because, uh, well, that's exactly what it is. But we'll make sure to have him back on with our new setup. There's still a ton I want to talk to him about that we didn't get to in our conversation, including his devotion to La Reina, Evie Queen. Uh, but we'll leave that for next time. For now, let's jump into the interview. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to the Paseo Podcast. It is September 25th, but that doesn't matter because it's a podcast, so you're listening to this whenever, wherever you are. We have journalist Justin Agrello on the show today. Justin, welcome to the Paseo Podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, we appreciate you being on. What should our audience know about you? Um, well, my name is Justin Agrello. I'm a, I'm a journalist from Chicago. I grew up on the, on the Northwest side of the city. I'm Puerto Rican, obviously. That's like why, that's like why I'm speaking to you. Um, yeah. And I cover right now, I work for a journalism, uh, nonprofit news lab, a journalism lab. Um, we're based in Bronxville. It's called City Bureau. If you haven't heard of it. And the reason why I say lab is because we have multiple different programs. So we have the program that I'm a part of, which is the reporting residency, and I cover housing for that program. And But then we also have a public newsroom, which is sort of like our workshop series that brings community members sort of into the newsroom um, to discuss different topics. Um, or provide people with different skills. And then we also have a documentaries program. And if people want to learn more about City Bureau, what's the website? Citybureau.org. And then you're going to go under, I think, Newswire is like where you where you see like our stories. Or you can always follow me on Twitter. Well, the, the handle out there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of spelled weird. It's like my first name with, without vowels. So J-S-T-N and then my last name, A-G-R-L-O, without an E. What should people know about the City Bureau Fellowship? 
Right. So the City Beer Fellowship is a great way for folks who who want to get started on a career in journalism or want to learn sort of journalistic skills um, without needing to go to grad school or journalism school, right? So the, the idea is to be able to sort of tear down these barriers that, that folks of color specifically have um, and so give folks formal training and formal experience in journalism, again, without them needing to, like, go into debt um, for J school. So right now we have um, nine fellows. There's three different teams. Um, we have nine fellows and then three team leaders. I am leading the housing team, and we are specifically covering um, the eviction crisis right now that's happening as a result of uh, COVID-19. Um, the other teams are covering civic engagement, so how immigrants are participating in the election, like I said earlier. And then the third team is covering um, the, city bu- the, city budget, the city budget and the movement to defend the police. Um, mm. Is there anything else you think? You yeah, think yeah. I mean, I think it'd be good to hear. I think it'd be good to hear. You know, what's the vetting process like, and mm. what's what's kind of the age range? Like, who? What's the makeup demographically of the people that uh, are on for the for the city bureau fellowship? Right. So, I don't have the demographics. Like, I don't know them off the top of my head, but we try to make. I just went through the hiring process, right? Like I was one of the, the folks hiring people. And I think a lot of people applied for this, for these sort of 10 positions. What we were looking for is really folks who, who are very curious about the way systems here work, but also had a very good understanding already or a good base of like how Chicago works or like Chicago history or the context of the city, right? Because certain skills you can teach, right? Like you can teach someone how to write um, an inverted pyramid article really easily, right? But like I, in 10 weeks, the fellowship is, is 10 weeks long. In 10 weeks, I can't teach you, you know, the history of segregation in Chicago, right? Like that, that is a whole college course, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or necessarily how, how, you know, city council works, how laws get passed in the city, how, you know, sort of those nuances that like if you grew up here or if you've lived here long enough, and you you paid attention to city government, then you sort of already know. So we were sort of looking for folks who are in like a sweet spot, right? Like who had enough experience that they could hit the ground running, and like um, we could get, we could. They had enough. They had enough experience that they could get the hit the ground running, but that weren't so experienced that they didn't get nothing out of the fellowship, right? And so we typically don't don't bring folks on who have. Um, who are like grad students who are in a, a journalism program because it's kind of like the what you're going to get out of the fellowship is going to be equivalent to what you're getting out of J school, right? So we wouldn't, we don't necessarily, we want folks who sort of like are going to use the fellowship as a space to learn like these skills um, and like how to be a journalist. The City Bureau do anything, any reporting outside of the city of Chicago? No, at the, at the current moment, we serve the South and West Side, specifically okay. in Chicago. In our mission statement, we are supposed to serve like those parts of the city because historically, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the legacy media in Chicago has not paid attention to those parts of the, of the city. Or when mm-hmm. they have, they have done it in a, in a way that is very toxic, that is very dangerous, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of has ruined or sort of has 
yeah, has tarnished communities' relationships with media, right? Like that has made communities um, dis- like not trust media. Mm-hmm. And so specifically, we wanted, as City Bureau was created to sort of like fill this news de- desert that was happening on the stop in the West Side. Um, and so all of a lot of my stories are about, you know, housing issues on the South Side or the West Side. Mm-hmm. Um, I can cover the Northwest side where I'm from. I can cover other communities of color in Chicago, but like, but like primarily those are the communities that I'm trying to serve. We're going to take a quick pause for the cause, pero no se muevan porque cuando regresemos, we're going to talk to Justin about reporting on housing, the history of the Puerto Rican flag, and which version of the bandera is his fave. Plus, He'll share some advice for aspiring BIPOC journalists. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Looking back to your their earlier years walking through the neighborhood and looking at some of these neighborhoods like West Town, West Town area, Wicker Park, uh, Bucktown, Humboldt Park. It's almost like night and day in some areas. Um, so as you're beginning to report on housing, not having that previous experience, that wasn't your beat before, as a journalist getting a new beat to cover, where do you start? Where do you start in the understanding process of what you're going to be reporting on? Housing is a very vast sort of beat to be on, right? Like housing can mean a lot of things. It can mean, you know, folks experiencing homelessness. It can mean affordable housing. It can mean segregation. It can, you know, like there is a lot under the housing umbrella and housing in the United States has a very long and like dark history, right? Especially specifically in Chicago, right? Like this is, this is like the blueprint for like segregation. Um, so I think for me, what I, it, because I know that this beat was so vast and that like there's so much policy involved, there's so much history involved and that makes it rich, but that also makes my, my room for error really big, right? Like I can like, I can get so many, or I can tell stories that aren't, as full as I need to tell them, right? Um, because I haven't read every single um, book about housing in the United States or specifically in Chicago, right? Because I didn't have time, right? Like I got this job and then like literally three weeks later, I had to move back. I was living in, in San Francisco 
was living in Oakland. I was working in San Francisco at Mother Jones magazine. And then I got this job um, in the middle of my fellowship or towards the end of my fellowship with Mother Jones. And then I had to move on here in three three weeks. And then all of a sudden I was a housing reporter, right? Um, and so I think for me, the way, the best way that I, I was sort of like, how can I make myself useful, right? Like I think that City Bureau does a good job because we sort of do like service journalism, right? And, and so we're constantly asking like, is the, who is our work serving, right? Like, how is this useful? How does this add more than just words and noise to sort of like the zeitgeist, right? And so I think for me, the easiest thing that I could focus on that could allow me to hit the ground and be useful for folks is to focus on tenants' rights, right? To focus on like what information do tenants need about their rights in a city that is so imbalanced or sort of so tipped in favor of landlords, right? And in favor of developers in that like if if a developer wants your neighborhood, it sort of just feels like, well, they're going to get it, right? And so I think um, I think that was where I started. It was like, okay, is the simplest part of this beat that I, or the a part of this beat that I can sort of like start reporting on is like tenants' rights. And then obviously COVID happened, right? Like COVID happened like two months, uh, two weeks into like, or the shutdown, the shutdown place happened like two weeks into my, my job. And so then... Um, housing became this huge issue all of a sudden, right? In a way that, like, in a way that it wasn't in the news prior to, like, COVID, right? And so, like, people started talking about, like, this eviction avalanche, and people started talking about, like, people can't pay their rent, and people are talking about, you know, landlords are doing X, Y, and Z to folks, or, like, small landlords can't pay their mortgage, and, like, they feel frustrated and left out, and then, you know, undocumented folks are being left out of rent relief, and, you know, sort of, sort of, the people became or like the tenants rights issues became sort of like um a good way for me to enter this beat while also still serving people and like helping them or giving them information that maybe they can find useful to sort of like navigate this moment what do you feel is a big housing story right now in the city of chicago affordable housing is always going to be a big topic in chicago because there's just there's such a lack of affordable housing. There's just such a lack of a of a system in place that allows black and brown folks who have been here for so long, specifically black folks, right, um, to, to stay rooted, right, and to stay, to enjoy sort of the culture and the city that they created um, in, a, in many ways. And so I think affordable housing, the, 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 Department of Housing, Chicago's Department of Housing just released a report, right, that, that said, like, over 13 years, like, something like 13 years, something like 1,300 units were of affordable housing were created, right, in Chicago. And, like, think about the drop in the bucket of folks who are rent burdened, folks who are, you know, doubling up with family members just to try to, just to, try to meet the rent in this city, um, and that only 1,300 units or so, or just a little bit over 1,000 units or so has been created in, in over a decade. And so I think affordable housing is always going to be an issue in Chicago, and that also ties in with, like, displacement, that also ties in with, like, gentrification. Um, but specifically what I'm focusing on at City Bureau is the eviction crisis I, with the group of fellows that I'm leading. We're, um, I think that there's a lot happening to very specific p- groups of people that isn't being covered in the media because 
you know, there are so few housing reporters in general, right? Like there are very few people, just even in Chicago specifically, that like ha- their beat is housing, right? Um, and so I think what I'm trying to do now, and I have this project going, is um, I'm just trying to hear from tenants, like what what is what has been happening to you during you know during the pandemic? How have you been paying the rent? You know, have you been paying the rent? Like what what things do we not know that we should know, right? And also what information do, do tenants need um, that they don't have, right? Like, how can we as journalists provide that information so that, so that tenants can better renters and also small business and small homeowners too? Like, what do y'all need so that we, you can better sort of navigate um, this moment in your life? And so uh, for that project, I have a Google form. So if you're a tenant and you're, and you're hearing this and you're like, you know, I... And facing eviction when courts reopen, or my landlord is pressuring me to move, or I want to move because of you know my landlord shut my my water off, or if you're a small homeowner and you're like, yo, my my tenants aren't paying rent and like I'm really cash strapped. Um, we have this uh, this this Google form, and if you go to cityburo.org/justin, um, it'll take you to um to this Google form where you can sort of um, reach out to me and, and, and sort of have a conversation about your story if you want to tell your story. Because I do think that this is a unique moment in housing, right? That, it, that if, you know, these, these eviction moratoriums are essentially a band-aid, right? Mm-hmm. And that like kicking the can down, you know, Pritzker yeah. re- renewing them every month is just kicking the can down the road mm-hmm. and it doesn't provide structural relief that both renters and small homeowners need in this moment. Um, it's my understanding, so, don't mean to interrupt you there, Justin, but it's my understanding too, like even if you have, there, there's some wiggle room here where if you have a rent freeze or an eviction moratorium, you could still have a landlord after we get out of this pandemic, that's after we get out of this pandemic say, okay, well, you couldn't pay for three months, you owe back to rent. Like, it's not just like a restart, you're fresh, okay, just forget about the previous three months, let's just start from here. So you could have, am I understanding that correctly? Like, there's no protection there to have a landlord tell to tell a tenant, oh, well, you got to pay me for the past few months rent. And where does that money come from? Yeah, that's correct, for sure. Mm-hmm. And we have landlords telling tenants that now, right? Like, they, they, don't, mm-hmm. they don't need to, you know, the eviction, well, something that Moises at the Tilton Alliance told me that I think was very profound is that you know the eviction avalanche so-called eviction avalanche is already here right that there are already people and we don't need the the courts to reopen right mm-hmm. we don't need the courts to reopen to for people to be evicted right and so people and that means a lot of different things right like if i am for example the examples that he gave me were, were sort of like if you are a person who's undocumented and you get an eviction notice which is just like a notice is just like a formal way of telling you, like, if you don't, you know, if you don't pay your rent or this amount of back rent, like, you're going to get sued, right? And you're going to have to go to court with me, right? And if you're an undocumented person who knows that that ICE has shown up at, at civil cases in civil court, right, to, to the poor people, that notice alone is enough to, to, to move you, right, to, 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 to displace you, to kick you out of your home. And I think that, like, what also maybe gets lost in in this conversation is that eviction was a crisis in Chicago pre-COVID, right? Like Chicago was already um, 
kicking like something like 20,000 um, people a year were being evicted through the court system, right? Like that doesn't count for folks who are like, you know what, like forget that court case. I'm not even going to deal with it. I'm just going to move, right? That's not, that doesn't include the people who like their landlords are like, um, you need to move or like I'm locking you out, right? Which is illegal. That doesn't include the people who their landlords want them gone. So like, boom, at the end of the month, I'm raising your rent $400. You know what I'm saying? Like you, so I think that like, evictions the formal the 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 data that we even have on evictions today is is suggests that there's a, a crisis in chicago already um that's disproportionately impacting black and brown people specifically black women with kids um and so i think that yeah that even the data that we have doesn't fully represent the sort of scale of the issue um mm. and, and so if you come if you sort of like compound that issue with a pandemic with a fucking Great Depression era economy, right? Like yeah. with all of the all of the things that we're seeing today, like imagine what we're not hearing. And so that's sort of like what I'm trying to find out. Like what am I not, what are we not hearing that we need to hear? In what ways is the state failing? In what ways, what solutions exist as well? Just to piggyback off of what you're saying, I remember when, you know, I would look for an apartment and on the application, it would ask me for, uh, sometimes I'd get asked for a W-2 or a pay stub or proof that proof of employment. Well, if you're collecting unemployment, if you're in the service industry, collecting unemployment and you get evicted, I mean, you're, you're SOL because now you have to prove, now you have to deal with landlords that want proof of employment and you have nothing to, to help state your case as to why you should be given a chance and, and, and become a tenant of theirs. It's almost as if the system is not really like to your point, like who, how do we look out for all people and not just the people that own property in the city? How are we looking out for working class men and women um, or working class people in general to make sure that they are being protected and have a roof over their head? And again, like you said, we're in the midst of depression era, like a code red like we're it is like shit is hitting the fan and we are not i don't think we're acting in my opinion i don't think we're doing enough to help people um that are the lifeblood of our society instead we're we're making sure we're keeping people that are making a ton of dough afloat people that own property afloat but the hard-working men and women that are going paycheck to paycheck they're kind of left out in the cold um and it doesn't seem like we're making enough of an effort as a as a country to make sure that those 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 people those families matter. Right. Uh, it, it's an unfortunate state of things right now, and you really got your work cut out for you reporting on housing. I thought it was a tough gig before the pandemic, and now it's like <laughs> I, I can only imagine. I do I do want to shift gears a little bit because I know we're running short on time, but we'll definitely put the link so if people want to share their their tenant stories with you, mm-hmm. uh, educate themselves a bit, just have a chat a chat with you. We'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can follow up. Um, Thank you. I, I do want to talk a little bit about you mentioned um, you mentioned Mother Jones, so I do want to talk a little bit about that because my first the first time I heard your name was uh, in my Google alert. I got uh, this article about the bandera, the, the Puerto Rican flag, and it was the history of the Puerto Rican flag and, and kind of understanding where it was to better inform where it is now. 
Um, and I loved it. It was short, sweet. Um, it was to the point, just my liking. Uh, and it, it was nice because I don't, I don't really see a lot of like bigger name outlets talking about the bandera. So I was just right. like, okay, who's this, who's this Justin cat? I gotta look him up. Um, and now of course we're, we're, we're Twitter friends. Um, so yep. I do want to pick your brain a little bit. What made you want to write about the, the bandera? Um, why do you, and in your opinion, why do you think the PR flag is so significant to the Puerto Rican community? Right. So that story came to me when I was at Mother Jones, I was sort of like a lost puppy. Like I didn't know what to write about. Right. And, and I could talk a little bit about why that was it, when you asked me about like my, what it, what it means to navigate journalism as a, as like a journalist of color. And so I think for me, I knew that I wanted to make space for Puerto Rico, for Puerto Rican stories at a large publication like Mother Jones, right? At, at sort of like a, nat, a national publication because I was sort of given the privilege to do that. Um, so the, the idea for this story, which is called How a Change of Color to the Puerto Rican Flag Became a Symbol of Resistance, is that I remember um, a friend of mine, Clarissa, who I went to grad school with, texted me one day and was like, hey, she was writing a story for Truth Out, I think it was. I can't remember. But she was writing a story about the school closures in Puerto Rico, right, because of the austerity measures. Um, and so she, for some reason, I don't remember why, she was mentioning the black Puerto Rican flag, the black and white Puerto Rican flag in that story. And she's like, hey, do you know what this flag means, right? And so I I had, um, and I think I still have this 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 sort of like brochure from um, that the Chicago Borica resistance had was passing out, right? If you don't know them, they're sort of like um, this grassroots organization that's that's consistently advocating for, you know, the decolonization and the end of like the U.S. occupation of Puerto Rico, right? And so I remember they had passed out this brochure and they like just laid out the history of, um, of the black and white flag, right? So Clarissa had asked me that and then... In the brochure, it said, like, on July 4th, the U.S. is in Independence Day. These women, these women in Puerto Rico from this art, from this art collective that later be, became known as La Puerta, sort of, they, 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 they painted over a very famous uh, flag in San Juan. And it was a flag that was on the side of a door. And, and it was, like, sort of this huge tourist attraction, right? And this, like, huge Instagram trap in a way, right? Like this very popular Instagram trap. And so the women had this idea that like, if we paint over this, um, days after Promesa had been, had been signed by Barack Obama, right? If we paint over this on the U.S.'s um, independence, like this, is, this would be like a, a very important message, right? And so after Kosa asked me that, and July, I started working at Mother Jones like June of 2019 and then July fourth, obviously is coming up. Um, it's after June, in case you didn't know. But um and I was just thinking like I I I wanted this history to be told. Not that like um not that like the brochure was like, oh my God, like that's less than a, a Mother Jones article. Like I'm not saying it like that. But I, I think that like journalism, because journalists are given this sort of like badge of authority in our society that like I wanted this history to be told um, or sort of legitimized in that way. Not that it was illegitimate mm -hmm. prior, because 
as we know, um, you know, oftentimes our history is a race and like our oral history is what we have left. And like, that is just as legitimate as like a story in Mother Jones magazine, if not more. But I wanted this story to be told on a, on a bigger scale, right? Like I didn't just want me in Chicago with this brochure to know, and not my friend to know it as well. And like whoever saw it in Chicago, I want it, or in Puerto Rico, if you, if you lived it, like, and, and you knew about it there, I wanted it sort of to be, I wanted it to sort of ricochet throughout the, throughout the diaspora. And I think it has. I always, I see that, I see people sharing that story to this day. Like it's so beautiful and I love it. I mean, I think there's um, something to be said about that. You know, we talk uh, about, you, you, you touched on this, you know, that we got, when we think about mainstream media outlets, we're not, um, we're not really uh, given that spotlight. Uh, and that's a big reason why we started this podcast because uh, we, I just felt like there wasn't, in traditional media, there wasn't enough of a spotlight on the, the diversity, the beauty that exists in the Puerto Rican community. And we just we have more Boricuas in the United States than on the island. So right. why is it that we don't get enough play? And why is it that we only hear about Puerto Rico stories when it's about a budget deficit um, or right. about Hurricane Maria, all things that are important? But when we talk about things that chronicle, archive, memorialize, mm -hmm. lift up our history, our culture, those seem to be like in these very like random corners of the mm -hmm. internet. So when you think right. about a plat uh, the platform that Mother Jones gives you, heck yeah, I'm not surprised that that article gets shared so much. It was a good right. article. And for people that may not know, I'm going to give people just a quick rundown um, of the flags you, you went through. Um, you know, people don't know about El Grito de Lares, which just mm -hmm. we just celebrated the, the anniversary of that a, a few days ago, or the difference between the Caribe blue flag versus right. the, that darker, more is that um, more American blue uh, mm -hmm. in their design to now the resistance flag. Um, I think like those the, that type of content is so essential to continuing our our history and just kind of pushing that forward. Um, so, I mean, kudos to you to, to writing a bomb-ass article that, <laughs> that people hey. love. How's, how's that feel to have an article that, like, just, just gets shared? I'm sure, like, you'll get, like, a random, like, ping mm -hmm. and, like, random day of the month. Like, oh, okay. I guess this yeah. is gaining more traction. So, so it sounds like it's just kind of had this life uh, beyond just that week it was posted. Um, how's that feel? It feels good. It feels great to, like, sort of... I think as a writer, I, you always want your work to sort of live on its own, right? To be evergreen, yeah. to sort of not. And I think like in today's day and age, it's really hard to sort of write something that people care about a week from now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's beautiful. I think I, I, I love the outpour of love, right? Like when I write about Puerto Rico and, and like the diaspora, like it's, it fulfills me in a way that no other writing does, right? Because there's just so much of, of like an appreciation that like I'm telling I'm telling this story but also in a way that's not you know like you just said like it's making space for 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 things that aren't getting covered that aren't for clicks right mm -hmm. that are sort of like here's this here's this little known history little known history to the mainstream right not to us right um and like here here's it told in like a way that 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 allows folks um, their humanity, right? That allows folks their agency. Um, so it feels good. It feels good to have that, to have, you know, to see it on, on, um, 
on Twitter here and there. I still see it getting, I still see people like sharing it. And uh, yeah, it feels good. It's funny because I was at the Puerto Rican Fest this year. um, And I wrote, I did a photo essay on like my Mm -hmm. time at the Puerto Rican parade this year in Humboldt Mm -hmm. Park. And I was wearing- You got some good photos too. Thank you. I was, or was I wearing, uh, I like had a black and white Puerto Rican flag, right? Uh And this woman comes up to me, she's like, do you know what that flag means? Like, she was, like, ready to tell me, like, what it meant. It was just so funny to me because I'm, like, <laughs> it's, it's, like, I read this article. I was, like, uh, I, can't, Love yeah, I know it. that. I know that Love article. I just happen to have a printout of that article in my back pocket, actually. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Is there, um, I mean, as you, were, as you were retelling the story of these different uh, banderas over time, was there, is there any story of... Uh, one of the versions of the Puerto Rican flag that is your favorite? Um, I really love the Lattice flag, right? That this was mm-hmm. sort of the first time that like Puerto Ricans sort of, not maybe not the first time, but this was a, the, 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 a, a collective moment in history where Puerto Ricans were sort of asserting their sovereignty, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in fighting for self-determination and imagining themselves within or imagine Puerto Rico in nationhood, right? Like this is a, this is a nation and this is a country and like mm-hmm. Spain needs to get the fuck off. So, I mean, I love that story. I love the story of um, the baby blue flag of um, that was modeled after the Cuban flag and was sort mm-hmm. of like, it was sort of like a symbol of solidarity with, with, um, with revolutionaries in Cuba fighting for the independence of Cuba. I love that story as well. And it's interesting that that flag got outlawed, right? That mm-hmm. that flag became a symbol that the state feared, and the and the the Commonwealth government, the proxy government that the U.S. set up in Puerto Rico, the Commonwealth Project, sort of feared that flag that so much that they had to like outlaw it, right? And like arrest people if you had it because it, it became a symbol of like of of freedom, of like liberation. It became a a, a symbol of, for the nationalist movement. So I really love that. I don't necessarily love that story because it's a story of violence, but I think it's kind of, I think when you ask me, why do we love our flag so much? Um, which Puerto Ricans love their, oh my God, they'll throw, woo, you can, uh, they'll throw a flag on anything. Yeah, uh, anything, anything. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Like, um, I was going to say, it's hard for me to choose what story behind right. each of these iter- iterations of our bandera that I like the most, but I, I do lean more to that Caribe blue flag because mm-hmm. of that story, not because I like that it happened, but because it gives me so much context as to why growing up, I saw banderas on people's socks, on people's hats, right, on their sunglasses, right. on their shirts, on their chanclas. I was like, man, we like rock. <laughs> we like rock our, our bandera right. like like no other, in, in my opinion. On, right. on my block, we got you know where the Puerto Ricans are because everybody has their flag outside. Um, right. It's just such a that, unique thing to, the, to our culture. Right. Or it's like hanging on some boxing gloves from your like rear view mirror. Yes. Or the little, the little, the little kid with the, with the back, the snap back yeah, backwards. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh. Classic. Um, all right. Just, Humble Park, these big ass steel flags in the Humble Park, like where in the world? The biggest yeah. monument to a flag in the world, by the way, those are, those are uh, huge art installations that uh, we actually did an episode on this a 
Billy Ocasio, who was the alderman at the time that, that got those erected in 95. Um, but yeah, where else in the world would you see the largest monument to a flag? And what? And of course, it's got to be the Puerto Rican community that's doing right. that. <laughs> what I will uh, say, though, I know we yeah. got to go, but what yeah. I will say about the black and white flag that I really love. Go for it. Is that it like, okay, so the lattice flag was sort of was sort of mirrored or had a connection to the, the, the Dominican Republic flag, right? Mm-hmm. And then the Caribe blue flag sort of had this connection to Cuba, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which are both very beautiful stories of like solidarity. But what I really love about the black and white flag that I think is unique of all of them is that it was the first time that it was sort of Puerto Rico specific. Does that make sense? Like it wasn't, it wasn't modeled after mm-hmm. or in solidarity with these other flags that it was sort of like, you know, here's us standing on our, on our own claiming um, or laying a stake in, in, in wanting liberation, right. And wanting sort of the end of the U S occupation. And so I think that, that, that flag is beautiful. And I think that some people, I think we need to keep that history alive, right. That like this flag represents um, a future in which Puerto Rico is free. Um, and that, in the future in which we are all free. And so I think that would be my favorite one. There's a flag I didn't get to in the story, which is the, you know, the rainbow Puerto Rican flag, which like maybe I'll do like a follow-up story, like an update, like here's the You totally should. (laughs) You 100% should. One of my favorite gifts online is Ricky Martin during the Renuncia protests, Mm -hmm. just on top Mm -hmm. of a truck, just waving the dual flag. I'm like, oh, this is like iconic. Definitely like should that. add that. I don't know if you saw at, in uh, kind of like uh, at the beginning of the George Floyd protests, or I just I would just say the uprisings. Um, right. There was on Paseo Boricua a version. Someone did their take of uh, of our bandera, but it had the colors of the African flag in there, mm-hmm. kind of as a callback or an acknowledgement of the Afro Latinx um, or the actually I should say the African roots that exists not only in the not only in Puerto Rico but in the Caribbean and you know, mm-hmm. Latinx communities throughout throughout Latin America. Um, that one was very I don't know if you saw the image of that, um, but I think it, I don't know what happened to it. I think it was on someone's storefront and somebody ended up um, uh, damaging it. Uh, oh, so shit. yeah, but if I can find it, I think I took a picture of it, but if you haven't seen it, definitely I'll, I'll find it and send it to you. Yeah. Uh, you could do, you could keep, you could give that article legs. I mean, you're going to get it. <laughs> Just let me keep adding them. Do you it, know, do you, it, do put it. The, put the one with the coquille on it. Yeah, <laughs> why not? Why not? Go for it. Let it ride. Um, right. Justin, last question I have for you, um, for any aspiring POC journalists out there listening today, do you have any advice that you can share with them? What, what, what would, if if you could tell them anything, any words of wisdom, uh, what, what would you share? Well, the best advice that I would give journalists of color is that like you can tell the stories that you want to tell, right? Like I think for me, for example, when I was at Medill, I wrote a lot about Humble Park. I wrote a lot about the Puerto Rican community. And like my professors would always be like, you know, stop doing that. You're, you're pigeonholing yourself. You're, you're sort of like putting yourself in this box and like employers are only going to think you can write about your own culture and your mm. own community, which is very strange because we would never tell a white person like, Hey, stop reporting on white, white shit. Right. Like mm-hmm. stop reporting on white, stop reporting on white avocado, shit. avocado toast. <laughs> that would never happen. And so mm. I think it made me really insecure. You know what I mean? It made me feel like, wow, like, 
do 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 folks look at me like I'm not you know that I don't know anything else but you know mm-hmm. Puerto Rico but I think now after I've sort of now that I have a few years under my belt I sort of don't I sort of don't I I sort of don't allow those those sort of limitations right like if I want to tell a story about Puerto Rico um I should be able to but I also shouldn't only be asked to do that as well, right? I think oftentimes journalists of color, we sort of want to tell stories about our communities because we know we'll tell them in a way that's like nuanced and that is contextual mm-hmm. and that allows people their humanity and, and is people-centered. And we've seen the ways in which white media has has done harm to our communities. Um, but I also think that sometimes editors, you know, when pride comes around, it's like, Yo, where are my gays? Come write this. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it's it's kind of tricky to sort of navigate this heavily white field. But I think like the best advice I can give is sort of stick to your guns, right? Like you know what you can write the best. You know what 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 keeps you curious. You know the best stories that I've ever written are the stories that I wanted to write, right? They aren't the stories that like a professor in my ear was telling me not to write or like this editor was telling me to write, right? Like, so sort of like trust your instincts and um, stick to your guns. And, and yeah, this is a very tricky, this is a very tricky industry to navigate and journalism sort of re- reflects the, the inequities of society. But I think the best thing that you can do is, yeah, just like stick to yourself. I think advice that I always tell myself is like, if no one got you, you got you, right? And sort of, and I and I apply that to my career, right? That like, that like, I have brought myself to this moment from Humboldt Park, from being growing up gay, growing up poor, all of these sort of like barriers, and I've sort of like, with the help of people who love me and care for me in my community, but like, you know, me believing in like my writing, me believing in like me as a as a reporter has sort of has sort of allowed me to come to this moment. And so yeah, stick to your guns and like trust yourself as much as you can. Well said, Justin, well said. Can you tell our listeners how do people keep up with you? Yeah, people can keep up with, with me specifically at um, at Justin Agrello on Twitter, but it's spelled J-S-T-N-A-G-R-L-O. Um, you can you can check out City City Bureau's work um, if you want to sign up to be a documenter and get paid to 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 watch and document public meetings. You can do that at citybureau.org. Um, and then if you're a tenant who has been hard hit by the pandemic and you want to share your story, you can you can do that at citybureau.org/justin. J-U-S-T-I-N. All right, Justin. Thank you so much, Josh. Appreciate you. Thanks to Justin Agrello for joining the show today. We might drop a special election day episode, but that's TBD for the moment. For our regularly scheduled episode drops next Thursday, I will be joined by eight-year-old Puerto Rican master chef Genesis Rodriguez. We're going to talk about her love of cooking, being autistic, and her YouTube show, Cooking with Genesis. See you there. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at baseopodcast on Facebook and Twitter. 
If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode and see you next week. Cuídate.